Welcome to this week's Train Like a Trooper podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Stewart, along with my co-host, Trooper Eric Foster. We're down in Durant today at the Drug Recognition Expert School. Um, We have Trooper BJ Keeling here with us also, who is the DRE, Drug Recognition Expert Coordinator for our state. And we also have our special guest with us, Jeff Cyphers. Jeff, thanks for being here. He is the, okay, let me see if I can get this right, Traffic Safety Resource Prosecutor. That's a really good, that was really good. Oh, I, I, mean, got that's, all, I got uh, it all in. It's longest title that I've ever had in my life. TRSP for the DA's council. <laughs> TSRP for the TSRP. DA. See, I mean, it just, it doesn't roll off the tongue easily. <laughs> no, it it's, we need to come up with a different title for you. I know, you, ciphers but. and prosecutor don't always used to get, they didn't always go together, but now we, we got well, it. Well, yeah, let's talk about your role here. Um, you were a defense attorney for a long time, and you got people out of their DUIs for a long time. That was the goal. Yeah, right. yeah. And for a while, um, it was a family business. Now the family business is prosecution. You totally flipped sides. I totally. So did the. So did my law partner. Yes, your dad. Yeah, the <laughs> the the older, better looking ciphers. Yeah, he's down in Chickasha. The one yeah. with white hair, not the red haired one. I won't talk about the white hair because <laughs> I'm going there at some point too. So yeah. So so tell us basically what what you do. What what is a TSRP? Hey, there we go. So uh, as TSRP, I serve as a resource for both law enforcement and prosecution equally. It's a uh, grant funded through the Highway Safety office. Uh, I've been doing it now for nine years, which is really interesting for me to say because that's uh, that's a long time. It was a two-year experiment that's turned nine, and we had our best year in terms of uh, attendance for all of our uh, things that we did last year. Um, Our numbers of folks coming to our seminars and sessions were in total about the first 14 years. They equaled about the first 14 years of the project. So we've had a a lot of great success, uh, a lot of reaching out for our folks with law enforcement and prosecution prosecution partners, traffic safety partners who are coming to the, the session. So um, what we try to do, the goal obviously is to provide as many training and resource documents to our traffic safety partners to make them better, you know, answer their questions before they even have them or just be there when they do. Yeah. So. Trooper Keeling, why is it important for you to have Jeff at these schools? Well, Jeff is our go-to for anything we need to know in the law, law basically. So if we need an expert opinion on it's a case or something like that or how to prosecute that case or what evidence we need to collect or how we need to word the reports on how to suffice the uh, prosecutors that's he's our go-to guy you know I, I call Jeff at all hours of the night all the time asking him random questions is popping my head and he does the same with me too so mm-hmm. it's it's a back and forth ball game that's true that's true Midnight means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying when you first started coming to like these schools and different seminars and stuff like that, you get you get dirty looks from the law enforcement personnel. Oh, that was in good. It was it was it was in, it was in good jest. But they um, were like, "What are what is he doing here?" There was some confusion. Yeah, um, why is this defense oriented person who has been in the DUI defense world for so long and isn't his dad still doing that? Um, yeah, there was some 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 question marks. Yeah, but it was uh, it was. It was all good. Well, and it's probably your background that makes you so invaluable for this role. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I came out of the world of defense with uh, being a f- former expert witness on field sobriety tests. I testified as an expert on the Intoxilizer 5000, so that should date me quite a bit. Um, and then I went to law school and started doing defense work because of, of dad's current practice. And I did it for a while. And, you know, the one thing that is so uh, attractive about what we're doing now is the teaching aspect of it. I truly enjoyed the teaching at the conferences that I went to for the defense side. And 
when this position opened up, uh, you know, there's a lady that sometimes calls me husband. I've been around her for 25 years. Uh, she pushed me to this, and it was a good decision. Uh, it's been a good career choice. I, I really enjoy working with these guys. And so uh, I don't tell them often enough, but, you know, I think they know. So keep talking. Keep sending text messages. <laughs> it's, it's one of those phones constantly go off no matter what you do. And no matter what you're involved in, your phone's always ringing. You're like. That's it. It's, it's, it's being a resource person is what yeah, that is. That is so, true story. Yeah. So, so what are you teaching these guys? What, what, what do you teach them? So we can do a lot of different things, primarily for law enforcement. Primarily for law enforcement, what law enforcement wants to know is, how do I create a case record, a case file, from the moment that I turn on my emergency equipment to the time that I get to court that will stand up in court enough to where either cross-examination from a defense won't be as severe as it might have been, right? How do I leave fewer holes that, I, that gives the defense an opportunity to attack me? And how do I create good case records so that if there is a conviction that's available, how do I gain that conviction for you know, somebody that actually has some sort of uh, uh, you know, price to pay for the actions that they took, right? Uh, and then also knowing that they did a good job by removing somebody from the street that was doing something wrong. I mean, how do I do my job better, right? And so what we do is we can provide you know courtroom testimony training, we can provide report writing training, mainly as a resource what they come to me for is legal updates, you know, um, kind of prosecution practice, kind of being exposed to the, the, the courtroom practice that we, that is kind of unfamiliar, right? I mean, it's hard for prosecutions, it's, it's prosecutors to look at law enforcement and expect them to be lawyers. And conversely, it's, it's kind of difficult, I think, to have the law enforcement agent be expected to speak the same language as a prosecutor might. And so I think at the end of the day, my goal is to try to find some shared experience to where they can benefit each other. Uh, and so our trainings kind of work towards that. It's almost like paying attention as soon as your lights come on on a traffic stop. It is. Eric, you're just observing. That, de attention, that attention to detail that maybe you've seen so many times that you would discount it, but not discounting it. And, and uh, you know, you see law enforcement officers in the field and they do it all the time and they're very comfortable in that element. And then they get really nervous when it goes time to go to court. And really the, the reason why is because the, the things that they observe all the time, they sometimes they don't think it's important or sometimes they don't even document those things but that you know when it gets to the court side it's very important and that's why training like this is so very crucial to uh, law enforcement officers is to teach them how to articulate their observances and why they are so important and then really um, you know if you write a good report it can keep you out of court really well there's something to that I mean the officer or the trooper who creates solid case files, right? The ones that are maybe not, uh, you know, unattackable, but the ones that leave little to attack become very noteworthy in the defense bar because if it is, you know, a BJ Keeling, right? If it's a, if it's a Eric Foster, right? Who comes in and says, you know, this is a Foster arrest. Then the defense is well aware of the fact that many times if there are things to attack, they're minor. Um, and if they are minor, then, you know, is it worth my time to like make that into a big case or is that something that needs to go away? Because listen, the, the long story short is there's no such thing as a perfect case file, right? right? right. There's, and if, it, if there is, it's pled, right? It's right. the difficult ones that go to trial. And usually the ones that are difficult in terms of prosecution are the ones that have 
things left open to interpretation. Right. And so with a DUI, especially an impaired driving event, there is no one piece of DUI evidence that is not open to interpretation. Think in terms of like a murder. If a murder happens, usually it's somebody that has taken a weapon or something and caused the death of another person, right? And so usually that's not a causation thing. That's a, I did, it's either I did it and didn't mean to, or I did it and uh, they deserved it, or I didn't do it. In DUI, all of the things that we point to of physical observations are, are things that an officer is basing upon his own experiences, right? Good or ill, it's something that they interpret as this is uh, an indicator of impairment. On the flip side, you know, there is the defense or the, the, the nuh-uh defense where they say, nuh-uh, that's not, that's not impairment. That's not what you saw. Right. And even in the, in the chemical testing, with chemical testing, we know that chemical testing as a whole is, is, is you know, fairly unassailable. But there's always some defense that says there was some physical issue with the, the human body that caused a breath test to not be accurate. Or there was something about the chemical testing, blood testing provisions and the quality assurance that was at the lab that they probably should have paid attention to. And that's why my blood test was different. So there's always something to attack on everything of the continuum of an arrest to the point of conviction that if you don't really look at them and close the doors before they happen, before they open, then the defense then has footholds and that they can, you know, right. attack you. Right. And so when I teach, you know, courtroom preparation, when I teach report writing or just, you know, uh, a, a, a way of, uh, of approaching a case is I try to like to teach from the defense perspective first because if you can anticipate your opponent's moves, then you can stop them from doing it. Right. Whether that be how you write your report, if you're more, you know, you're more critical in how you communicate the information, whether you're more aware of the things that you observe so regularly that you almost discount them, right? right. Like when you pull over a person on the side of the road, how did they get to the side of the road? Because those how do they get there might be used against you about what they did right as opposed to what you're saying that the, the defendant did wrong. Right. And so it's little things that the defense makes huge things out of. And I don't know if you're ever familiar with the term uh, death by a thousand cuts. Oh, yes. Yeah. The more times that the defense can nick the case to make it bleed, the more that it bleeds in the eyes of the jury, the more likely that they are to find innocence as opposed to guilt. So if we can leave less available to attack... That means that the jury has more to decide to, to find somebody guilty of their, you know, what we're accusing them. Talk about, you said you brought in some examples of some not so good reports. You just told us about one. It sounded like it was about three sentences long. It was more like seven, <laughs> but they didn't say much. Um, it, actually, it was seven that was a, a fair description of the, of the event. But at the end of the day, all we were left with was uh, the odor of alcoholic beverage. And, you know, the one thing about all of the things that read on a DUI, if you leave any one of them alone on an island by themselves, they'll never convict anybody of a DUI. And so that's where we come with that kind of that concept of the totality of the circumstances, right? That's a buzz topic that means so much, but we say it with a lot of just kind of casual, you know, tone. The idea of a DUI is all things build on themselves and the absence of one thing tends to weaken everything else. 
And so that's why when we start thinking about the totality, everything is interrelated, so we have to include everything, right? And in this circumstance, we had odor. At the end of the day, after seven sentences, we had odor. And the district attorney who was here attending the conference asked me and asked BJ to review it. And at the end of the day, we were like, there's no probable cause here. We know what happened, but we can't prove it. And, the, and there's a difference between a probable cause and the arrest report. You know, the probable cause is really that minimum standard of what you need to show elements of the crime that they committed yeah. versus the the entire thing. And we see guys just copying and pasting sometimes their probable cause affidavit yeah. and pushing that forward as an arrest report. Yeah, and you know, that's those, what gets you in trouble. Those are cases that I like to call 51 percenters. Yeah. Right? I mean, honestly, those were my 51 percenters. Those are the cases where you go... Yeah, I can probably file an information on this, but can I prove it in the eyes of the jury? And, you know, the thing that I was just teaching the other day, I taught this course for uh, uh, for some of my peers across the nation uh, for the TSRP Traffic Tuesday. It's kind of a national webinar series. And I was talking about report creation, not from what we try to communicate to the jury, because honestly, from troopers' perspective, law enforcement, prosecutors, we know what we want to tell a jury. But what is a jury actually buying? We know what we're selling, but what is the jury buying, right? I mean, if you think about it, your jury, your fact finder, your judge, they have experiences. And their experiences are likely different than yours that you learned in the classroom. Their experiences are born out of life. They've been around a drunk. They've been a drunk. They've had a family member that's a drunk. They've had a family member that's a, you know, a, a, a pill popper or, you know, an opiate addict or, you know, that they're using cannabis. Whether they agree with it or they don't, they have a frame of reference that shapes their understanding of what an impaired driver or an impaired person is. Right. And so while troopers in law enforcement get a lot of training about this is what an impaired person looks like, you need to remember that sometimes, no matter how much technical training you've got, sometimes those physical observations that they themselves have already identified and indexed in their brain as this is what an impaired person looks like, sometimes those physical indicators that we discount are actually the most impactful when you get in front of a jury. Yeah, yeah. You know, and talking about the this case and the good thing about having Jeff on board and that DA reaching out to him is there's still other things to go back and collect more evidence on that case that we can go back to. And kind of like we talked about with her, it was like, yeah, there's still more things we can do to go back and gather the evidence that we need after the fact and still kind of help save the case in some, some manner. It's just teaching the troopers and the officers that, hey, this is the stuff that these district attorneys things need and that kind of comes where and they come to our training and that jeff brings along training as well going hey this this is how we build the case this is what we need let's try to do this instead and and you know mistakes happen right we're no one's perfect i mean uh, historically there's only been one person that we know to be perfect and he's not here anymore i think he walked on a little bit of water and then disappeared he's supposed to come back right but Mistakes happen. The key is, is that there are officers who make the mistakes and then they never happen again. They identify it, they internalize it, they acknowledge what is going on, and then they learn from it and don't make the mistake. Right. And those are the ones that we were talking about earlier with the, they've got the pedigree, right? Those are the folks that show up in, in, in the defense lawyer's office and the person you know that is defending that case goes, yeah, so it's that guy. Okay, so let me tell you what's going to happen here. And they start talking from the plea side of things as opposed to the attacking side. Right. So you can develop that that calling card, if you will. It's just it takes a little bit of history and learning from mistakes. Right. So. 
And talking about, you know, you talk about the report writing and stuff, too. And then do you do you talk to them about like tips for when, when they do get called into the courtroom? You try to. I think that what is most beneficial in those circumstances is given the opportunity to do kind of like moot testimony. I mean, we have a course called Cops in Court. Um, it's on its second version. It's a, um, it's a NHTSA product. And it's a um, form training that's anywhere from four to eight hours. And it's kind of a your role in the courtroom as well as kind of basics about what direct looks like, what cross-examination might look like. And then there is an element that allows them to testify and practice and then kind of get a little bit of feedback from the group, a little bit of feedback from me. Frankly, I used to be pretty good at cross-examination or so I'm told. And they get to be cross-examined. And then we talk about what were the goals of that cross-examination? Where was it that you gave me the opportunity to go? And that... I found, I mean, the feedback I get from that is really positive, that they're like, yeah, I never really thought about it. Because sometimes cross is just weathering the storm. You know, lawyers like to talk. Defense lawyers like to talk more. And lawyers think they're smart. Apply the same rule to what I just said. I mean, you know, defense knows more about it than everybody else, or so you're, you're told. And so in cross, sometimes it's just weathering through the 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 questions, because they're really for the hearing of the jury. They don't, they're not intended to make you look foolish. It's just the jury to try to convince them that there's not as much there as the prosecution would like. And on the flip side, sometimes, you know, you need to, as law enforcement, educate your prosecutor to say, hey, when that happens, right, if you hear a hole, get up, watch me, look for me to give you, you know, some sort of visual cue to say, circle that on my sheet of papers, because that's something that I can explain more later. You know, like if uh, given the opportunity, if I were to say, hey, BJ, you know, when, when Cyphers asked you about this, he didn't give you time to explain. Did you want to add something and give him the opportunity to look like the hero? Because cross-examination is about control, and it's about control of the witness and not giving them the opportunity to look like the superstar that they already are. And if given the opportunity, you know, the, the prosecution could like reopen that stuff. Um, so there's ways to give them tips, tricks, and kind of some, you know, encouragement to work with their prosecutors to make it a little bit, you know, more of a two-way street. So Jeff has done so good with his program over the last well, nine years, like we were talking about earlier, that now in the last, probably the last five to seven academies that when we do DUI training, we actually bring Jeff in and do this court class for the, for the new troopers in the training academy. That way they can kind of experience because some of those kids have never even been involved in court at all. Yeah. And, you know, they sit in there and then when Jeff comes in and starts all his attorney talk, it's just you can almost watch their color change in their neck through their head up because they don't know how to react or how to talk or, you know, how to how to take that. So it's really good training for us as a law enforcement also when we get to bring him in and they have a real attorney with good credentials behind him that shows everything he's done in his history and then they go this is the person you need to listen to do what he says and it'll really help your training out later on later on your career well there's some things about you know nonverbal communication right i mean you're you're a, a professional at communication we say as much by our body language as we do by the things that come out of our mouth in fact probably more comes from our tone and our body language than the words right and so when you think of a jury or a fact finder, you know, judge, but a jury, certainly they start jurying, they start judging as soon as they walk through the door and take their seats. They're already assessing everybody in the courtroom, whether they have a badge on or a tie on. 
And then if under cross that badge, that person that's representing the state of Oklahoma, that's testifying about facts that they and only they saw is suffering under cross so much so that they aren't willing to make eye contact or their, their body temperature goes up and they're, they look paralyzed. What is that saying to the jury without saying any words at all? And so that kind of practice, letting them kind of suffer through it, there are very few circumstances where you're going to get lawyers like defense bar and people that are going to beat you up. Um, you know, that's, you're going to like it. <laughs> it's better to do it in the classroom than the courtroom. Right. Yeah. So what are some of the more common mistakes that you see law enforcement officers making either in their reports or in the courtroom? Well, typically it's leaving things, it's leaving things out, you know, leaving things out that are like the common things that we talked about, the, the stuff that obviously, you know, we joked earlier about writing reports that are, it was a dark and stormy night. Right. But if it was, and it's important, you need to put that stuff in. But things like, you know, the physical observations, the, the mom method of determining impairment, right? When you came home, if you were fortunate enough to have your mom and you were a teenager and she wanted to know if you'd been out drinking that night, she didn't come up and give you an HGN. She gave you a hug. Now, I'm not suggesting that you troopers go out and start hugging everybody <laughs> when you think of an impaired driver. But the mom method, sometimes the physical indicators, is just as important or impactful to a non-professional impaired person observer i.e. jurors, as the HGN that you did or the walk and turn that you did or the one leg stand that you did. Um, so keep in mind that sometimes the things that you might just take as common, well, there's a reason they're common, but those are the same common things that need to be communicated to your, to your juries. And, you know, um, just confidence, a lack of confidence in a lot of ways. Um, I'll tell you one thing we have a benefit nowadays, and, and some law enforcement officers don't see it as a benefit, but I do, is our cameras. Our camera systems sure. are so good. Our audio is so good that we're, you know, we teach our troopers to articulate to the camera. And, and even as far as I know in my DUIs, I articulate what HDN is to the intoxicated person. Well, they're not listening or paying attention most of the time, sure. but I'm telling that on camera and so when I go back and do review that to write a report it's very easy to say okay that's exactly what I saw I remember that now you know because I said it right then when yeah. I saw it yeah and uh, those things like that to be able to articulate that are very very good well you bring up a good point because I mean this evening right there are going to be men and women in brown shirts in black cars on the road making DUI stops they are not going to court tomorrow Right. Right. And so, um, you know, we're, we're creatures of habit and our, our ability to remember things is finite. That's why we write things down. Right. And so if you're going to be better, you know, spend the extra time to review things, to create good reports so that when you go back to review them, it is not you don't have to reeducate yourself. I mean, you're going to do it anyway. But I mean, Take the time to create something up front that you don't have to go and reinvent the wheel 18 months later. Because as many times as you're going to do anything this evening, you're not going to go to court that fast, no matter what TV tells you. Right. I think I've actually got a court case coming up. In, it's either in July or August, and it's from three and a half years ago. Oh, wow. You know, and you're sitting there going, oh, I'm glad I wrote a good report on that one because I yeah. don't remember a thing about it. Yeah. Yeah. And those are the ones with, you know, they even you get on the stand to testify, like, can you point out the, can you point out the subject and the, or the defendant on the, in the case, I'm like, love to, yeah. but 
It's been three years, and when I seen him, he had puke all over his chest, no beard, and now this other sitting there is clean cut and has a, you know, you're like. He's wearing a suit. Yeah, wearing yeah. a suit and tie. And you're yeah. like, that's not how he looked the night I stopped him. But yeah, he, I think he, he him. sounded like he had a mouthful of peanut butter that night. <laughs> yeah. and today he sounds like, you know, he actually has a voice. So. With the officers that are listening to the podcast, what is, what could you narrow down the most important thing you would tell them? I know we've talked about, you know, writing good reports and we've talked about the different things like that. I, I love to use the word articulate, like, sure. like very, you know, say what you need to say. Yeah. Um, but to, to officers that are listening, what is the most important thing you could say, especially when it comes to like writing a report or not just writing the report, but making that, uh, that arrest, go all the way through trial and, and be a good arrest? First, I would tell you that everything matters, right? Remember, remember that everything matters. All things about a DUI are interrelated. Therefore, all things should be either considered uh, uh, as you create a report or at least as you are preparing to go to court. And even from the pre-stop, I mean, before yeah. you ever turn your lights on, that's important Absolutely, too. Absolutely, right? yeah. I mean, because... All things that drew your attention to the vehicle to stop it, right? Whatever those are, does it, does it or does it not have something to do with what you've been taught to be that an impaired driver might be in front of you, yes. right? Yeah. Once you get them to the side of the road, that's when you start developing that uh, investigation and, and kind of confirming what you had already suspected, regardless of what the, the traffic stop was based on. But if it's a traffic stop based on an act that is related to an impaired driver, you need to to consider that whether you put it in your report or not. I, you know, that's kind of up to your own writing style. Right. But continue the timeline from the point that you tr you turn on your lights or you think that you've got something going on to the point where you let that person go to the jail cell, um, and and think about the things that all go into it because I don't know that more is necessarily more, but. There's a lot in an impaired driving event, or at least a lot possible. So make sure that you've got the things that you did observe in your report as best you can, right? Nobody's asking for you to be, you know, Henry Thoreau. We're not asking you to be some sort of creation, you know, novel creator, not creative writer or anything like that. But enough to where it's not a guesstimate, right? Like what we you know, explained earlier. Um, so remember, everything matters, uh, even if it's in small amounts. And I think there was a song about that back in the 80s. <laughs> so anyway. What were some of the things when you were working as a defense attorney that you would identify, like if, you know, if a, a law enforcement officer had written a report mm -hmm. and you would, you would see these key things and then go, okay, this is going to be a little more difficult to defend? Usually, if um, there was always what we called the rubber stamp, and the rubber stamp was always odor of alcoholic beverage, right? And impaired. So we're talking alcohol impairment right. because the, the math has changed with DUI drugs becoming yes. more prominent. But back in the day, we called it the rubber stamp. And it was odor of alcoholic beverage, bloodshot, watery eyes, staggered gait, slurred speech. That was the rubber stamp. It was on everything. E easy to defend. That would, that's... Well, not necessarily easy to defend. It was just those are things that are constantly and consistently in a personal contact phase of an impaired driving contact right in the investigation right. those are consistent and they're fairly unassailable now you can separate them and attack them individually but when they're meant you know in, in testify to collectively well that kind of a that kind of a dui driver makes but for us usually usually 
attacking the field sobriety test was the best and most fruitful part of an officer's arrest decision. Whether they did that correctly or not. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, there are things that you do in a, in, a, in SFSTs that are they're standardized. That's why the name's in the title, right? And so we would argue that anything that was outside of the standardization was something that was uh, created a weakness in the arrest decision or the, the conclusion that was drawn by the, the, the officer. And so field sobriety tests are a feeding frenzy. So if the report was weak there, that's where we turned. We'd leave the other stuff alone. Right. And so to answer your question more directly was if the field sobriety test made up a good, you know, testimonial portion of the, te- of the, the report, they were written well. We knew that the officer was going to likely testify well, and therefore it was kind of one where you, you know, walked backwards. Something done well probably meant that everything else was done well. Something done incorrectly, something that was not done as you know, others might, gave me an indication that they may not be very good on the witness stand. It's that attention to detail that you're talking about. It is, and it's really just not cutting corners, and this is what I saw, so I'm going to document that. That's what I saw. Document it either, you know, on your camera or in writing. I mean, that, that is, uh, there, you, can't, you can't argue that when I'm looking at it, you know, when I'm saying this is what I'm looking at. So, that, I mean, that's what we try to tell troopers. You know, that's a, I, like Eric was talking about earlier, I really try to hammer forward that, you know, a lot of troopers are very experienced in reading, experienced at reading body language and reading and seeing things they do. They just may not be the best at explaining what they see. Right. And that's what's really beneficial for have Jeff run is they can tell their story to him and he goes, well, this is how you need to explain that. Yes. And this is why you need to explain that. And that's what really helps a lot of, a lot of officers and a lot of troopers and everything when it comes down to that, having him in our. I think part of it is um, we all have friends who aren't law enforcement, who aren't DPS who aren't, you know, they don't deal with this on a daily basis. And so what I like to talk about is, you know, if somebody's over watching, you know, today OU's playing uh, in that final softball game, right? And if y'all were all sitting around watching that that softball, that national championship match, and Eric, you were going to talk about a vehicle that you stopped, right? And we're all sitting around with those friends that aren't you know, law enforcement folks, and you were going to tell them about it, you would not talk to them about it like you would tell BJ. Right. Or, or you wouldn't tell Sarah about how this went down. You would talk to them like they would understand it. And what we have a problem with, I think, is the shorthand, the things that we take for granted, right? right. Um, the way that we speak to one another. Right. Um, doesn't always communicate and translate to the average folks that we may pull off the street um, or wherever we are. Right. And it's, I'm, I mean, I kind of really got, I got to where I started really loving the idea of this jury-focused, jury, you know, starting point. Probably about a couple of three years ago when I was le- trying to learn about jury deliberations and the things that go into jury deliberations and how information processing and brain science and stuff. I mean, it's kind of nerdy, but that's okay. I mean, they come to me for nerdy all the time. Um, <laughs> But I really started loving the idea of a jury-centric approach because we know what we know and we know how to tell those others that speak our language what we know, but how do we communicate it to conviction or communicate it to a fact finder? Because 
realistically, no matter how many times we tell that story to prosecutors or law enforcement, or frankly, we try to overcome cross-examination and DPS hearings or trials or things like that with defense bar, it still is not any one of those players that matters. It's the judge or the jury. So if we're going to start thinking differently, right, and for troopers, this is something that may seem foreign because we go to so many law enforcement trainings and we have so many colleagues that we talk to and try to get better about. It might seem foreign, but I, I would, I've seen the value in it. And so if I was going to tell any trooper who was listening or, you know, sitting around, I would tell them, start thinking about your jury buying experience as opposed to what you're trying to sell them. Because your sales, your, your sale that you're trying to make is you're speaking your language and you might not be speaking theirs. Right, right. I just, it comes down to just be honest, say what you what you saw, and say it in a way that you would just you would tell anybody. And well, and they can't eat you. Yeah, yeah. And, and just, they can't. They, and they're well, not. But they, if you're not making it up, well, I mean, I mean, yeah. you just be honest and say. That's my you, point, right? Yeah, the, not, it, the defense can't eat you're not you. Trying to create anything. They they they're not going to attack you. They're going to yeah. attack you anyway. Well, yeah, but they're yeah. not going to get you. And so um, I would submit that any courtroom you go into, that's your living room. Just as though you were sitting there talking to anybody else that might be, you know, there with you watching the game. Right. I always try to, and I've done this several times in testifying in court, is I try to relate to the jury is just as a bystander walking up to me at the gas pump that I don't know from Adam that's asking directions or something. Yeah, I could throw 10 codes and everything else at him all day long, and he's not going to understand any of it. But if you talk to him just like, hey, you know, a person, you know, not coppling go of cop terms, just explain to him correctly that's the jury seemed to draw that in better than you get up there and start throwing cop lingo and everything else and math on they're like what yeah but and it's so it's hard it's hard hard because you write the reports a certain way you know i observed so using these terminologies that we don't just use in everyday language oh yeah and it, it comes across as you're trying to sell something that's not authentic Whereas if you're just talking, people are like, oh, okay, I understand that. Yeah, I was on duty on the 12th of Never, and I saw uh, a vehicle go left of center. Right. Or I saw a car, or I saw a Ford F-150 go left of center. Right. As opposed to, I was on duty stationed on the whatever, on the 12th of of August 20-whatever, and I observed a motor vehicle go left of the center line on three separate occasions. Mm -hmm. On initiating. And then I initiated my emergency (laughs) equipment to initiate a traffic stop. And And by that time, the jury's going... You know, I'm pretty sure you pulled somebody over, but I'm not completely certain. Can we revisit that? I mean, I think we talk about that in dealing with the media too. Yes, and and yeah. when you're doing interviews with the media and speaking to the media, we're like, cut the cop speak out. You yeah, know, when just, I came to the PIO office, it was very much get out of the uh, report writing terminology and get into talking to people. And you're well, saying we need to get out of the report writing terminology, even in the reports. I think that I think getting out of I think I can even reduce it down one more step. Get out of your own way. Sure. You're a storyteller. Sure. They're usually, I mean, I don't know of any of y'all who ride along with one another unless you got nothing better to do on a day off. But usually y'all are by yourselves, which means that when you make a traffic stop, whatever that traffic stop is for, whether it be impaired driving or whatever, there are two people typically at a traffic stop, you and the opposite driver. In an impaired driving event, one of y'all is impaired and it's not you. Right. right? At least we hope. Right. Um, so there's two people that know the story of that event, right? And as law enforcement, your job, your role is to determine truth, right? The truth of a particular event. You didn't know what happened before you got there, so you're trying to articulate the truth of it, whether it was against the law or not, right? Yeah. 
get out of your own way. Tell the story. Yeah. It's a story at the end of the day, right? I mean, you're yeah. all about telling stories. Yeah. You've been that way for as long as I've known you. So we tell stories because people remember stories. Right. They don't remember, you know, they're okay. They're okay about remembering certain facts, but they want the story when they go to the jury assembly room. And so remember that, yeah, you got to write something a certain way, but get out of your own way. Just tell a story. Yeah. You know, I, I go a lot with that with law enforcement. You know, most law enforcement officers, because of the jobs we do, the things we see and stuff like that, mostly all of our friends, most people hang around with, on even on our off time, is either some type of law enforcement or something like that. So the, the language that you talk, you're, we're talking about never goes away because you're around everybody that you know is in the same same line of work, same yeah. job. You know, I, I take to, I grew up in a nursing, where my, my mom was a nurse. Yeah. And so nursing lingo was common to me because at the dinner table, that's what she talked about all day was her day, you know? So then my all my family was law enforcement. So for the longest time, that's that's all I knew. I knew the same terminology, same lingo and everything else. So it took a while to develop to go, hey, I have friends that aren't, aren't cops. Well, and it's and a that, comfort zone for us. Well, they always want to ask you, oh, hey, tell me a story. And you're like, yeah, this is a normal day, man. I just want to sit here. I don't want to tell stories all day. but Well, I mean, like for lawyers, lawyers are, it's, if you're ever around a bunch of lawyers and they start talking about Fourth Amendment law or whatever, they talk in shorthand. They'll call something out about the Wren case, right? right. And they'll right. talk about, you know, reasonable suspicion to put somebody on the side of the road. They don't fill in the blanks. They just go, hey, you know, and Wren went, you know, yeah. that's how it applies to this. And that shorthand becomes so familiar it's so comfort you know it's a comfortable place that like when i'm at home and that lady i talked about earlier you know uh will tell me quit being a lawyer just tell me the story <laughs> i'm like oh that's right well i've had to stop you a couple times like hey hold on wait start over what, what are you talking well, you, about you do that a lot to me anyway <laughs> you do that a lot to me anyway you're just like going by the way can you bring it down to mere human yeah. level <laughs> I need um, non-lawyer terms, I try. Please. I try really hard. It's just hard. <laughs> and then even lower for BJ. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you got to get down here below the table. <laughs> we'll serve it to you down there. It's okay. Pick it up, put it down. It's it's down there somewhere. It's okay, though. It's, it's, a, it's a, it, it is a, it is probably the most fun job I've ever had, honestly. That's great. I look forward to it. So That's good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your time hey, and you I'm happy talking to, be here. to us about this and uh, it's valuable information for, Very valuable. for those in the law enforcement community. Well, you know what I, what I really love? As the resource guy, um, if there are questions that come out of folks from law enforcement, from your troopers or whatever, um, you know, hit me up. Uh, that's what I'm here for. Uh, or call me and I'll get it. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know where to find me. You know where to find me. It's not hard. It's not hard. <laughs> you established you call him at midnight every night. So. It's true I don't know about every night. <laughs> yeah, I've missed a few nights, but <laughs> usually it's just this random things. It's like, hey, I'm on duty and this just happened. What do you think about that? And I'm like, it's 15 till midnight. Um, <laughs> and we'll talk. I mean, but that's because it's it's fun. Hey, so. you know, it can't be worse. Like, hey, I got, I'm going to do this school. Hey, what are you doing next week? Or I've done that before too, you too. <laughs> <laughs> So are you busy 48 hours? I kind of need a trooper. Hey, I just sent you an email. Can you review that real quick? I need that by tomorrow. <laughs> no, that's me. That's usually how it works on my world. So. Well, thank you for being on the podcast, I'm happy Jeff. to be here. We appreciate happy it. To be here.